Now reading from the Bible, we're looking at um, John, uh, John 19 and reading about the crucifixion of Jesus and the lead up to it. Uh, it's 19 um, verses 17 to 30. And this is what it says. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with, with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be filled, fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Guest, and it's great that you've been able to join us. Well, right at the very start of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, we read about a tree. And, uh, and then, right at the very end of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, we read about another tree. Uh, and I'm very grateful to the Bushlands Nursery up the road who were so generous in allowing me to borrow these two trees for this morning. 
Um, we do learn, however, that these two trees are in fact one and the same. Uh, and the tree is known as the tree of life. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 that if you eat from this tree, you will live forever. And then we read in Revelation 22, we learn that the leaves of the tree of life are for healing. Where this tree of life exists, we read in Revelation 21, that there will be no tears, there will be no mourning, there will be no pain, and there will be no death. What a grand vision this is. So effectively, the Bible is book-ended by these two trees. It is, in fact, one and the same tree, but we read about this tree, the tree of life in Genesis, and we, the Bible finishes with the tree of life in Revelation. Let me just tell you a little bit about the tree in Genesis. So in Genesis, we read in chapter 2 primarily um, about Eden and this beautiful garden that God has made for, for people to live in and to enjoy. And in the Garden of Eden, when God first created it, um, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God made all kinds of vegetation and fruit uh, for people to enjoy and to eat. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we read about these two trees. We read about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and evil. And, uh, and God instructs Adam. Eve isn't around by this stage. God instructs Adam uh, that he is to, you know, all the other trees you're very welcome to eat from, but not this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. And as we well know how the story goes, um, Adam and Eve end up taking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and go on to suffer the consequences. And uh, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't actually give any specific reason as to why um, Adam and subsequently Eve are not to eat from the tree. He just simply says not to. And we could assume that this is, in fact, the gift of God, the gift of choice. Some might say that God was trying to tempt Adam and Eve. But given that there was so much variety that was accessible to them, we could say that God was in fact giving them the gift of choice. They didn't have to choose to eat from it, but they did. Now we actually learn from the serpent, probably not the best person to get a source of information from, but we learn from the serpent that this is what will happen if you eat this tree. If you eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and Evil. Now, it will very soon become apparent that knowledge of good and evil will become capacity for good and evil. When you think about humanity, isn't this true? We are a people who have capacity for good and for evil. And this all comes back to the tree in the garden. Now, they eat from the tree, as you know, and here's the consequence. Um, obviously, God had already said to Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve don't immediately drop dead as soon as they eat from the tree, but it certainly sets death 
in motion. Here's the more immediate consequence. We read in Genesis 3, 22 and 24. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So in other words, Adam and Eve, they're evicted from Eden. And they now exist in a world of tears and mourning and pain and death. A world that you and I inhabit and are only too familiar with. So that's a little bit about the Genesis 2 and 3 tree of life. Um, sorry, I'm going the wrong way. Okay, now, right at the end of the other end of the Bible, Eden gets gloriously recreated. And we see the tree of life in this recreated garden. And I just want to share with you briefly a couple of passages that speak about the tree of life at the end of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice, chapter 21 is so glorious, the new Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. We, friends, are right back in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. <laughs> the Bible kind of finishes where it ends in many respects, or where it begins. And further on in Revelation 22 and 1 to 5, then the angel showed me, this is the apostle John who was having a vision in the book of Revelation. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Interesting point, through the majority of the letter to Revelation or the letters to the churches in Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Something we'll come to shortly. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Revelation 21 and 22 are such awesome chapters of the Bible. I've spent so much time in them recently and I just encourage you to do the same because it fills your heart with so much hope for what is awaiting those who place their trust and faith in Christ as their saviour. Great part of scripture. So the Bible is essentially 
Um, sorry, right at the end, the tree of life was restored, never again to be withheld from humanity. So we see that the Bible, the Bible is essentially bookended by these two trees. However, right in the very heart of the scriptures, we read about another kind of tree. Not a tree of life, but rather a tree of death. On Good Friday, we remember that Jesus died on a Roman cross. A cross was made out of wood, dead wood. So what we find is Jesus on a cross. And to suffer on a cross meant three things. Firstly, it meant incredible pain was inflicted upon the victim. The Latin word excruciatus, where we get the word excruciating, means out of the cross. And it describes the pain that is inflicted upon one who dies a death this way. Now, of course, uh, the crucifixion was reserved for the lowliest of criminals, of murderers, of those who had done injustice. The other thing is that this, uh, the, the, the death on a cross was not done in private. Rather, it was done in public. It was a humiliating, shameful way to die. And I suppose it was, it was equally used as a deterrent. Not only was it to punish uh, the, the perpetrator, but it was also to serve as a deterrent to anyone who would seek to rebel against the great Roman Empire. Uh, and thirdly, anyone, according to Deuteronomy 21:23, who dies on a pole, referring to effectively a wooden cross, is under the curse of God. There's kind of this threefold um, uh, shame and pain and curse that is going on for anyone who finds themselves on a Roman cross. The cross is a place of tears, of mourning, of pain, and of death. And so the Bible is bookended by these two trees of life. But in the middle, in the very heart, the centre of Scripture, we find the tree of death. How on earth is it that the perfect, spotless, blameless Son of God, the author of creation, according to John 1, the agent of creation who was there at the beginning, how on earth is it that we find Jesus on one of these Roman crosses, a tree of death on Good Friday? Well, wrongdoing comes at a price. And the demands of justice have to be met. And we see this all the time. In fact, I think it's been fascinating this week with the ball-tempering scandal to consider the demands for justice. As this um, scandal, if you like, has unfurled during the week, it has been amazing to me to listen to the demand for justice. <laughs> We're only talking about a game here. We're only talking about a game. Uh, and I'm not in any way 
saying that the, uh, the judgment that has been handed down is not sufficient for the crime and so forth. But we as a people, innately, whether or not we have any faith or belief in God, demand justice. When we see that something is wrong, we feel it needs to be made right. And if somebody cheats, there's a price to pay. Wrongdoing has a price tag. We cannot live and function in a world where people can just do whatever they like and get away with it scot-free. It doesn't work, and nobody would actually want to live in that kind of world if we kick up such a stink about a ball-tampering incident then what does that say about the injustices that people suffer that are far, far worse when we speak about abuse and theft and mistrust and violence and murder? Wrongdoing, regardless of the size or nature of that wrongdoing, always comes with a price tag. You see, right at the very beginning, when God is talking to Adam, he explains the rules of the game. You're not allowed to tamper with the ball. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You can see right there that wrongdoing comes with a price tag. The price tag, eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, will result in death. Uh, Disobedience to God's rules in this situation sets in rhythm uh, a way of life that is now going to include and incorporate uh, pain and suffering and grief and tears and death. To eat from the forbidden tree is to invite certain death because you will no longer have access to the tree of life. Now, when we think about the justice that is demanded from wrongdoing and the price that has to be paid, there is always, for justice to be satisfied, a sacrifice needs to be made. Now, if I I keep running with the ball tampering scandal, a sacrifice has now been enforced upon certain players that they will no longer be able to play the game for a period of time. And obviously their reputation has been tarnished. But, you know, if you, if you get a fine for speeding, well, the sacrifice will be you'll have to make a payment. Or if you do something that is going to require you to serve time in jail, there is a payment. There is a, you will have to sacrifice your time to compensate for the wrong you have done. Wherever justice demands a payment, a sacrifice must be made. We see it right throughout society, in every area of life. Interestingly, the very first sin requires a sacrifice. 
We see in Genesis 3.21, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree, it's their, eyes are, their eyes are open and we are told that they are embarrassed about their nakedness. So God does an incredibly gracious and loving thing for them. He makes clothes for them. And we read here that the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Many of the pictures you might see where Adam and Eve might have leaves around themselves. Well, this is before God comes. They cover themselves up with leaves. But obviously that's just a a temporary solution. God in his goodness and graciousness chooses to offer them something far more long-term and endurable than some leaves. But where does skin come from? It came from an animal. Now, what did the animal do as an animal lover? I mean, come on. This innocent animal actually had to pay a price. Uh, The animal lost their life so that Adam and Eve could be clothed with garments made of skin. And, And many would say that this is, in fact, in Genesis 3, the beginning of the sacrificial system that runs all the way through the Old Testament. Wherever sin has been committed, uh, justice demands that a price be paid. And in order for that demand to be settled, a sacrifice will have to be offered. And the sacrifice always comes from an innocent party. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Until, on a hot, dry and dusty day, John the Baptist sees his cousin Jesus coming towards him and the crowd and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is the last prophet in the line of prophets that stretch right back to, uh, to the Old Testament, someone like Moses. And John's an interesting character because we, John kind of has a foot in, uh, one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. And, and this is just the most profound thing that John prophetically says about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For, for many of us, we have heard these words so many times. The very first time these words are spoken, something incredibly shifts. (laughs) An incredible shift is going to take place because here is a spotless lamb who is able to actually um, take upon himself all of the sin of the world and put an end to the need to continually sacrifice innocent animals. It's as if Jesus steps into the courtroom with God as the judge on one side and humanity on the other side and says, I will step in for them and make payment for their wrongdoing. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus not only takes sin upon himself, he in fact becomes 
sin. Which, just for a moment, if you will, try to consider just your own sins, just little old you. Just some of the things that you've done in your life that you know are wrong, that you know have hurt and caused pain to others. How on earth do we get our heads around the fact that Jesus has taken on himself, and many of you, I'm sure, in this room would actually consider yourself a really good person. You're in church on Good Friday. Like, you're a good person. You probably generally do well. You're kind and nice to people. What about bad people? Well, according to the scriptures, we're all bad. And it doesn't really matter. God doesn't have a scale of how good or how bad a person is. We're just we're kind of all in together. Which on one hand is sort of encouraging, but on the other hand, it's kind of not. <laughs> because for those of us who have an ego and sort of think that we're pretty good, we don't really need much help, it shoots us down pretty quick to recognise that we are in the same category as the worst, most sinful person known to humankind. The good thing about it, though, is that God's solution is the same. Whether you are a seemingly good person or whether you are an incredibly evil, horrid person, God's offer and invitation for life for you is still accessible. Why did God do this? Why would Jesus take all of that sin upon himself, becoming sin? It's because of God's love. The Bible tells us that God is love. It's not just an attribute of his character. It's, in fact, the very essence of who he is. And the Bible uses familial terms to talk about God. He is referred to as father, as parent. And for anyone in this room here who has a son or a daughter, then you will know that no matter how much that child will at times frustrate you, regardless of their age, whether they're a child or they go on to be an adult, there's something within you as a parent. It just kind of means there's a, a default to love. And the scriptures talk about God's love for his children. The scriptures talk about the fact that all people are made in the, in the image of God. And in Second Peter we read that God... Uh, God's desire is that none, is that none should perish. Uh, just as a parent loves and cares for their child and longs to see them succeed and prosper in life, so too God feels this way about all of humanity. He longs to see everyone come to know him, come into a saving knowledge of Christ and a relationship with him, be forgiven of their sins and enter into right relationship with God. The love of God is overwhelming. It is never-ending. It is so deep and so wide. And more than ever on Good Friday, we see the love of God in its most extreme form, Christ, the Lamb of God, on a cross, suffering an excruciating pain, being humiliated and being cursed because of God's great love.
You see, we read in Romans 5, 6 to 8 that at just the right time when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to clean up our act, get things straightened out before Christ died for us. No, Christ dies for us and Christ comes to you today in your mess, in your life, wherever you are at. The invitation to be forgiven if you would repent of your sinful ways and by doing that, what you are, you are acknowledging and confessing that I, I haven't got it right, I haven't got it figured out, I need a saviour, I need someone who can satisfy the demand for justice in my life. The cross of Christ is where, you may have heard this before, the justice and the love of God meet. Sin demands that a price be paid. But God's overwhelming, never-ending love actually steps in and pays that price. It's an amazing thing. The tree of death goes on to open up the door to the tree of life in Revelation 22. Because Jesus suffered on the tree of death, you and I will have access to the tree of life eternally. Hallelujah. On Good Friday, we come at Revelation 2.7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The, the message of Easter is this, my friends. This is the only thing you have to remember from this morning. That in Christ, through death, comes life. Through Christ's death on the tree of death comes access to the tree of life. Christ dies so that we might live. On Good Friday, we remember the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God in, in my place, in your place. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to come and thank you for the sacrifice that you made for all who would confess their need for you, for all who can humble themselves and say, yeah, I got it wrong, I continue to get it wrong, I'm not perfect, and I understand that there is a price that needs to be paid. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid that price. We just take a moment now to pause. And I ask you, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Saviour? Could this be a day where you say, I understand that there is a price that needs to be paid for my sin, let alone anyone else's. And I know that I can't satisfy that, but I understand that Jesus has. 
And if you are in that place, I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The wonderful thing, friends, is that it's not about what we've done. It's about what he has done. And so, Jesus, I just thank you that you have made a way possible for sins to be forgiven, for humankind to be reconciled with God and to yet again, just as you originally planned right at the very beginning in the garden, that we would never die, that we would have fellowship with you and access to the tree of life. Thank you that those who place their trust and faith in you will enjoy that privilege in the coming time. We love you, Lord, and we thank you now. Thank you for your word and your promises, your sacrifice and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and join us as we sing hallelujah to the Lamb God.